Good morning. It's, um, it's fantastic to be with you this weekend. Keep those um, verses open in Ruth chapter 1, please, and we'll, we'll go through together. There's a handout, and on page 8 of the handout, there's a bit of an outline for our time together in this first session. Now, I realize I probably don't need to tell a gathering like this, that uh, you'll probably know this, that when Taylor Swift released her song in 2008, Love Story, uh, you'll remember, won't you, that it went higher in the pop charts than any other country song in history, except for that classic of uh, kind of half a generation before by none other than Shania Twain. I'm telling you what you already know, don't worry. (laughs) Uh, 1998, You're Still the One, that uh, classic by Shania Twain. It went higher, but other than that, Taylor Swift, her love story. Uh, yeah, I'm, it's patronizing to be told what you already know. I know that. But this song, song Love Story, again, you probably know this. Uh, it, it was, she said it was written about a time when she introduced a particular boy to her family, and they weren't too keen on him. And she said that that experience of that introduction gave her a real sense and insight into the plot of what was her favorite story, Romeo and Juliet. And she said that now she got what it felt like to know that they were the only people who wanted them to be together. And the song was birthed from that angst. She said this, I thought this is difficult, but it's real. It matters. It's not simple or easy, but it's real. And that, if you think about it, is actually the plot of every good love story. And that's why her song actually sold so well. It's difficult, but it's real. There's something about that that resonates with us as we think about stories, particularly love stories. When two people meet in a story, if they just get together, there is no story, if you think about it. They met, they fell in love, the end. That doesn't sell. We're not interested in reading that kind of thing. But their lives were hard and they found each other, and they struggled through adversity, and against all the odds, they made it. Well, that's the plot. Uh, Beneath any good love story that is worth reading, well, and and it's actually the plot in lots of stories that aren't worth reading, but (laughs) it is the plot line of even the most saccharine offerings. What about this one? A girl asked a boy if she was pretty, and he said no. Then she asked if he liked her, and he said no. She asked him if he wanted to be with her forever, and he said, no. She asked him if he wanted, uh, sorry, then she asked if he would cry if she walked away, and again he said, no. And she was brokenhearted, and she turned to go, and he grabbed her arm, and he said, you're not pretty, you're beautiful. I don't like you, I love you. I don't want to be with you forever. I need to be with you forever. If you walked away, I wouldn't cry, I would die. It's difficult, (laughs) but it's real. Now we laugh. The book of Ruth is a love story, but it certainly isn't. They met, they fell in love, the end. It's full of intrigue and tension, but also adversity and sadness and pain. It starts with broken hearts and tears, doesn't it, in those verses that we've just read. And the story of Ruth is a classic love story, and it is a classic love story because it's difficult, but it's real. It's not simple or easy, but it's real. 
And one of the great questions of our human experience is, where is God when life is like this, isn't it? When your heart is broken, when you suffer or struggle, and you think, where is God in this? And in the first paragraph of this story of Ruth in these verses 1 to 5, it actually reads like so many people feel when things are hard. In the midst of real pain, it seems like he's absent. Did you notice in those five verses, God's name isn't even mentioned? It's like he's absent. It's like we're suffering, we're enduring great pain and heartache, and he, he doesn't seem to be interested. It's like he's walked away. But what we discover in the story of Ruth, as the story unfolds, is that God is far from absent. In fact, in this unfolding romance between Ruth and a man who will emerge in uh, a couple of talks time called Boaz, is that God is actually at work in and through those circumstances in remarkable ways. This love story isn't just about two people, Ruth and Boaz, nor is it even about their two extended families. But when we get to the end of the book, uh, we get to the end of chapter 4, we discover there that there is a list of names that connect us beyond their historical circumstances to King David, to God's great covenant king. And then by Matthew 1, the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospels, what we discover there is another list of names where Ruth, the lady who gives her name to this book, is named in the family tree of King David's great heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth is part of a bigger story, a bigger love story, a bigger story of redemption where we see that God is ordering history and he's doing that through the twists and the turns and the pain and the heartache. This is difficult, but it's real. And he's doing that to prepare for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one, the great one who in great love through great danger and enduring great adversity redeems his bride, the church. So, as we embark on these four talks in this book, um, I've chosen particular passages to focus on. Um, I, I've been praying about this, and I hope that these are, these are passages that will particularly help you as a church, help us all as we think about these things together. But I want us to see that Ruth is ultimately a story of hope. But we do start in the darkness. This little prologue is taken up with three things, history, irony, and tragedy. And each of those is clouded in darkness. You would expect tragedy to be clouded in darkness, but the history and the irony as well. Our author seems to be taken up with these three things. So first of all, number one, history. Let's think about that. The author starts by placing us at a particular point in time. Verse one, in the days when the judges ruled. The events of this book take place in the time of the book immediately previous. And what we have there is a theological, the book of Judges is a theological history of God's people as they went through uh, what is described there as a kind of repeated cycle of disobedience against God, a disaster brought on them by God because of the disobedience, repentance uh, as they've been awakened to the fact that they've been disobedient, and deliverance. The people would turn from God, there would be judgment for that sin, they would see that failure and come to repentance, and God would then raise up a great deliverer, one of these judges, until that judge died, and we read on and the cycle happens again. Scholars have suggested that the book of Ruth took place between 1250 and 1050 BC at one of the darkest points in the life of the nation of Israel. One commentator says it is a time of social chaos 
and personal misery. Social chaos and personal misery. And the people of God had so capitulated to sin that it's as if they had almost completely lost their identity as God's people. But against that backdrop, the author introduces us in these first few verses to these people by name. He's specific. Elimelech, Naomi, Melon, Killian, Orpah, Ruth. And he's doing that to make the point that these names are significant. In fact, the story starts with a list of names, and then, as I said, it closes with another list of names. And what that's doing is making the point that this is real history involving real people and engaging in their real lives. This isn't a man and his wife and their sons. It is a particular man, one called Elimelech, his wife Naomi and their sons Malan and Kilian. This is not fantasy. The people are real, and their experiences are real too. And what this means is that in the midst of the spiritual and cultural and political chaos of life in Bethlehem under the judges, God knows these people. He knows their names and he knows their circumstances. And he is at work in their lives and their circumstances, bringing his purposes to pass. And it's no different today. In the days when Trump or Putin, Jong-un, May ruled, we could say, in the days when in the UK the church is weak, uh, if we think about uh, the description, as I said, that the commentator used of the time of the judge as a time of social chaos and personal misery, as we think about uh, where we stand as a church in our nation, where there is no small amount of spiritual confusion and chaos everywhere, the thing is that however hard it gets, however lonely it might feel, you're the only Christian in your workplace and you are persecuted because of that and it is lonely, however lonely it might feel, God is ordering history and he knows your name. In the midst of all that is going on in this family, their lives, there's a good chance that um, this was a wealthy family. Uh, Elimelech is from the uh, Ephrathites. They were, um, they were a fairly noble clan. Um, being able to relocate the way they did was something that probably required a significant amount of, uh, of, of means. And of course, wealth is one of those things that often can inoculate us from the, the, the trials of life. But even so, they're, they're being uprooted and they're moved away. They choose to move away from Bethlehem to Moab. And it could have felt like their lives were just very insignificant. In fact, if we look at verse 5, Naomi has lost everything. It's telling, actually, the way the author has, uh, has done this. So he insists on giving us these names of the people all the way through. Um, he could have just said there was a particular family in a particular place, and uh, they did this, and this happened. But no, he's, he's given us these names, but then uh, it's interesting that we get to the end, and having told us all these names, it's like he has symbolically withdrawn the significance of that again. Verse 5, both Malan and Killian also died, and Naomi... And the translation is actually literally the woman, and the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The names have been taken away. 
It isn't as if, it's as if it isn't just that she has lost what she had, but that she has lost who she is. But our story's just started. We can see that God is at work. It might appear that she has lost everything, but God takes note of every life, and he holds her, and he holds her future in his hand. There's a significance in the fact that Elimelech dies and that Melon and Kilion die, but she's preserved. Friends, don't despair that you find yourself in circumstances in life that you think it's as if they have put you beyond God's reach. You're laboring away in a particular context, or you've made some and, and you've been faithful and it feels like God is nowhere to be seen. Um, or you've made a series of decisions that have taken you uh, away from God, and you think, I've actually pushed it too far. I've gone beyond his reach. He doesn't know who I am, and I'm going to be cut off. That's not the case. He is the great God of history, and he knows your name, and he can meet you even in the darkest circumstances. Number one, history. The second thing uh, our author wants us to see is irony. Irony. Now, this is seen, uh, I think, in, in a host of ways. Um, but I want to specifically highlight the way it's seen in two names. First of all, verse 1, can you see? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, and um, tells us about that, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, but there's a famine. This is the land which God described as flowing with milk and honey, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 13, and it has dried up and there is no food. Nothing is flowing. The reason for the famine in the context of the judges is that uh, God's people have turned their back on him, they're at the point in that judge's cycle, we could call it, where God has brought judgment for sin. That was stated right up front in the terms of the covenant that God made with his people. I will be your God and you will be my people is the covenant promise. And the terms of the covenant involve blessing for obedience and penalties, curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, God had said very clearly, famine is one of these curses that he will bring if his people sin against him. So the people should think, famine, oh, Yes, I remember, repentance is what's required. But the people have knowingly rejected their God, and so God has done this. Bethlehem, the house of bread, doesn't have any bread. Now, it's important to say that, as I said just now, the, the, uh, the goal of the, of the covenant penalties, as it were, was, was, was to um, cause God to, God was causing his people to waken up to what they were doing and the, and the, uh, the trouble that they were going to have as they walk away from him. Um, but these, these guys choose not to return. In fact, that's, that's the second irony we see, verse 2. The man's name, we're told, was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. Why is that ironic? Well, Bethlehem, house of bread, but there's a famine. Elimelech means my Lord is king. But his actions show that he very definitely doesn't trust the Lord as his king. 
The crisis brought about by the famine should have led them back to the Lord, but instead, Elimelech, my Lord is king, uproots his family and heads for, of all places, Moab. This is an astonishing decision for an Israelite to make, both in, in, in leaving uh, and in the choice of the destination. So firstly, they leave the land which was specifically given to them as a nation. To leave the land in those days was a very clear statement of leaving God, walking away from God. God's presence and the land were linked inextricably. The temple, the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle prefiguring the temple was a symbol of God's presence among his people, and it was in the land. And here's Elimelech, my lord the king, and he leaves. And secondly, he leaves to go to Moab of all places. God had made it clear. Moab were a people who worshipped the fire god Chemosh, and they were, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, they were to be avoided. You have nothing to do with the Moabites. And yet the Lord is my king, has taken his family to a land where another God, a God who demanded human sacrifice, in fact, was king. It is a dark irony that Elimelech left God to find security and provision away from God. He went from God to find security and provision under, as it were, the rule of another God. He went looking for satisfaction and fullness in the world of other gods. You think about it, perhaps he thought he was being prudent, There's a famine. We've got to do something to fix this. Verse 1, we're told his intention was to stay for a while. Perhaps just sit things out in Moab until the famine passes. Maybe he could even have said, let's go and we can plunder the Moabites while we're there. We can go and uh, avoid the famine on the one hand and also take the best of what we can get while we're there. But verse 2, the family remained there. Soon their sons take Moabite wives, and before they know it, verse 4, 10 years have passed after they'd lived there, about 10 years. So what has happened is Elimelech didn't like the situation he found himself in, but rather than see the famine as a chance to repent, to submit himself to God the king, he took matters into his own hands and decided to be his own savior, even though it went against what he knew God required of him. What he did was adopted the attitudes of those around him as the solution to his struggles. And how easy it is for us to do the same. In our day, when there's a famine, not physically, but in the life of the professing church, that is, there is a famine of the Word of God. In days when his people have turned their backs on him, he he removes his Word in order that people will come to their senses and think, we don't have the Word of God here. We need to repent. We need to call Him to, 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 uh, to come back amongst us uh, as a way of wakening us up to our need to depend on Him and find our sustenance from Him. What we see is that across the country, church buildings become apartments and pubs and all kinds of things. We're not repenting, however. What we think instead is Uh, We're not going back, as it were, to the regular means of grace that he has given us, prayer, the preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances. Instead, we think we'll we'll think up novel ways to try and fix things ourselves. Is it not the case that we've largely decided 
the professing church in our nation has largely decided that the answer lies, the answer for the shrinkage that we see, the answer to that lies in making the church more like the world. We understate the things uh, in our gatherings that are explicitly Christian because we think, well, the world won't like it. And we apologize for things that are distinctively Christian about the way that we do things as churches. We think that that is how we'll get people into our little group. But that's not right. It hasn't worked, certainly not in any lasting way. Think about it at a personal level. We see this when we call ourselves Christians. We profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus. But when the pressure is on, we actually capitulate to... uh, We'd, we'd rather give, give, give ground. We'd rather capitulate than be cool-shamed. We'd, we'd rather capitulate than have the cool, cool kids tell us that we're out of touch. Can you see the dark irony in identifying with Jesus Christ but denying him when you're asked or when, the, when, when, you're, uh, when someone puts that kind of so patronizing, you don't honestly believe that, do you? Uh, I mean, no, I don't. Something like that. I recently spoke to the head of a Christian organization, and when I asked them questions about what their Christian ethos looked in practice, looked like in practice, I promise you, they couldn't have done any more to fudge their answers or to actually avoid saying what the Bible says because the culture has told them that that's not acceptable. Perhaps the most obvious way we do this is when we think that the answer to our struggles is going to be found by moving away from God. We convince ourselves, we've, we've worked it out in our minds somehow that the answer to our pain is to sin. We want to be married, but there aren't any suitable Christians, so we get involved with someone who pulls us away from Christ. We want the acceptance of the in crowd, so we do stuff that we know we shouldn't do because we so crave their approval. We hate being lonely, so we get embroiled in the online madness of porn or hookups or whatever it might be. Why is it that so many of us are control freaks? We want to be our own saviors. We want to be in control of our lives so much so that we uh, stress ourselves out beyond belief and we, make our, we, may, we become miserable people to live with. We need to be in control. We take the name of Jesus to ourselves, but then we choose to order our lives according to a different standard than his standard. It is as ironic as being called my Lord the King while choosing to leave God for Chemosh. Irony. Well, the rest of our passage shows what happens when we choose to do this. So here's the third aspect of the darkness, and that is tragedy. History, irony, tragedy. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Melon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. God's name is left out of this prologue to symbolize how these people had left them out of their lives. And this tragedy is a picture of where life lived that way ultimately ends up. Elimelech dies. His sons who had followed in the rebellion of their father, making their lives in the land with foreign wives, they die as well. 
And as I said earlier, this leaves Naomi without a name. She's just the woman. And in that culture, without any means of provision, she is left without anything. She is all but wiped out. It seems like she has no future and no hope. The security and the protection that Elimelech sought may have been there when they first arrived in Moab, a bit like uh, the story of the prodigal son when he goes away from the father. At the start, he, he was loving life. When he had all the money and he was spending it on himself, it was great. Perhaps when Elimelech first arrived in Moab, everything seemed great. Often the case when we make choices to turn from God. Initially, it can feel like we've been set free, can feel exhilarating. I've spoken to plenty of people who see their rejection of God this way. People who have professed faith, who have gone along, gone along for a while, I've walked away from God, and I've, I've sought to meet with them. I've sought to say, listen, come back. And they, they talk about their new life as having been set free. It can feel like that, because sometimes, initially, God will give us the very thing that we have desired. But in the end, Everything that Elimelech sought was denied him. And his sinful choices didn't just bring disaster on himself, but on the whole family. This must be a warning to those of us who are fathers, those of us who are husbands, to realize that our sin has consequences. God has made us the head of the family. We can't avoid that. We either do it badly or we do it well, but that is our position by divine design. And we have to bear in mind that when we make the choices we do, those choices have consequences. Our sin is never private if we are in a position of leadership like that. It always has a knock-on effect all the way out and all the way down. But all of us need to see that this decision to walk away from God leads to a destructive end. When you turn your back on God, even uh, even if you do it in a slow to start with thinking we know what we're doing kind of way, the end is tragic. We die. We die physically in the end, yes, but that is a picture of physical death, is a picture, of course, of the much more serious spiritual death that comes as we walk away from the one who is the source of life. There is no life that endures away from God. And our God is the one who, if we cling to him, even in our darkest times, will bring us life, life that is truly life, life that is marked with the character of eternity. By verse 5, Naomi is almost wiped out, but that almost is the hope that we are left with, that God will turn things around. This story has a way to go. We're going to see that over the course of this weekend, Lord willing. It's not simple or easy, but it's real. And the reality is that where you are tempted to walk away from God, or perhaps where you have done so and you find yourself empty, you've decided to come on this weekend, but actually you've begun to make emotional shifts, uh, uh, spiritual shifts in your heart, in your mind that are going away from God. If that is you, come back. If you find that you are empty like Naomi, come back. We, we leave her in this first session in misery. But of course, that's because she doesn't yet know what we do. 
that there is a redemption coming, that there is a descendant of hers who will come who has made a way for rebels to be reconciled. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we could be welcomed back like the prodigal son to a father who is always good. History, yes. Irony, yes. Tragedy, yes. But we do stand at a different point in history. I don't want to get ahead of myself for the other talks, but we do stand at a different point in history. And we know one who, through repentance for sin and faith in him, draws us to the Father who is always good, always faithful, always ready to cover our sin and bring us back to the heavenly feast. So wherever you find yourself this morning, the first thing we do is we go to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are a good God and that you rule sovereignly. And we know that even in our struggles, when we don't know what you are doing and it is hard, we can trust you because to know that our world is under your control is a good thing and a comfort to us. And we pray that as we think about the experience of this family in the days when the judges ruled, that you would enable us to recognize that you're a God who is working your purposes out in history and that we can trust you no matter what. And prepare our hearts for what follows from the rest of the book, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.